Welcome to the KBB Review Podcast. You're listening to episode three of season three, and I'm your host, Andy Davis, up here in the loft. I've broken off from some state-sanctioned hugging, the postman looked pretty relieved, if I'm honest, to bring you a couple of really interesting guests. First up, we have Emma Culshaw-Bell. She's a painter who specialises in authentic hand-painted kitchens, but also paint effects, restoration and colour consultation. And it's so interesting to hear from someone with such classic artisan skills. Brilliant stuff. Then we change gear completely to talk about Brexit six months on. Has it made any difference to British manufacturers such as shower tray maker JT? I'm chatting with sales and marketing director John Schofield. But first... Have you subscribed to the KBB Review podcast yet via an app such as Apple Podcasts? You haven't? Well, you're missing the chance to get access to every previous episode, as well as making sure new episodes get delivered straight to you automatically. Don't let the word subscription put you off. It's totally free, and it's just one click of a button. Simply search KBB Review, or one word, and you'll find us. So for all the advances in technology and manufacturing, one of the things that keeps the KBB industry so interesting for me is that there are still so many true skilled artisans working in it. So I'm so pleased to welcome down the line now, I hope, someone who really encapsulates that, and that specialist painter, Emma Culshaw-Bell. Hello, Emma. Hello, Andrew. How are you? I'm very, very well, thank you. Now, I think I've managed to grab you in the middle of a job. So where exactly are you? Um, yes, see, my phone's dinging already. <laughs> Let me just turn that off. I, I work on site on uh, a lot. I'm on the tools, so I tend to be um, designer, boss, and on the tools all the time. Right. So, what are you working on right now, then? It's actually it's a kitchen repaint. We do a, I do a lot of this in in the fact that people have beautiful kitchens that are just aged and um, you go in and you refurbish the whole thing, strip them back, change the handles, change the flooring, change everything, change the colour and um, they get a completely new kitchen for a, a few thousand pounds. The repaints are bread and butter of what I do. It's the paint effects that really interest me and inspire me. Let's dip into that a little bit because I've given you the very broad title there of specialist painter, but can you fill in the detail of what that actually means and how it fits into the kitchen world over and above just painting a door? <laughs> uh, well, yes, I am a specialist painter. That's exactly what I am. But uh, I specialise in, in paint effects and colour. I'm a colour consultant as well. So the high-end bespoke kitchen market is all traditionally, mostly traditionally hand-painted. You go on site with your brushes and your sanders and you stay there until it's all hand-painted. It's perfectly painted and then you move away. Now, there's, there's two parts these days with painted kitchens. One is you get the painted cupboards factory sprayed, you fit the cupboards and you retouch on site. Uh, that's very, very popular. Or the other one is a traditional hand painter goes on site, paints them. There's, there's market for, for both completely. And there's arguments uh, cost-wise for both as well. But what I'm interested in, and I, I, I go on site all the time hand painting, but when we talk about bespoke kitchens and we talk about bespoke uh, bathrooms and, and bedrooms, etc., yes, the, uh, the cabinetry is bespoke and, you know, everything has been made specially 
but there's no bespoke paint finishes anymore. It's just literally, generally, it's a pa- you're painting grey on kitchens day and day, day in, day out. And I'm just a bit, I know it, the scope for more, and we can push it further into very subtle and soft paint effects. Not like they were 30 years ago. You'd probably be too young for this, Andrew, but 30 years ago, the kitchens, the hand-painted kitchens were uh, lemon rag-rolled kitchens. But I'm not, I'm not suggesting we go back into that. As you say, hand-painted kitchens are, are a common thing, and it all falls into this sort of what is the definition of bespoke, I think, which is a debate that's been going on for as long as I've been in this market. But obviously, what, yes, what you do is so much more than that. Give us an idea of the actual detail and technique that you're using. I mean, for example, I've been looking at some of the stuff you've been doing with Charlie Smallbone recently, and some of the finishes there are just so intricate and detailed, uh, and it's and it is totally and utterly unique. It is, it is. That's that's the beauty of working with Charlie. You might as well start at the top. Well, Charlie's new venture, Ledbury Studio, he's really innovative and and unique. He's using a myriad of different materials in his designs for his kitchens, a lot of metallics and um, all sorts of different textures of wood. And so when it's pulled together as a kitchen, the painted cupboards often need a, a very subtle paint effect on them to consolidate the rest of the effects that he's designed. If you just had a flat uh, hand-painted kitchen cupboards around his hip flask pewter and his um, verdery copper finishes that he has on cabinets. There would be a disparity uh, with with the finishes. So that's why I'm, uh, and this is where it's truly bespoke. This is where, when he, he asks me to go on site and I design the paint finishes directly with the client. It's kind of on the hoof, if you like. So that's very challenging, but I, I absolutely, I, I love it. But um, we start with samples and things like that. And to be honest with you, the samples that we go for, by the time I'm on site, between myself, Charlie and I, we've changed our minds and we've adjusted the, the, the paint finishes anyway. That is truly bespoke. Not custom where, you know, you pick something out of a catalogue or a certain few samples and that's what you get. We don't do that. Yes, and I guess what you were talking about uh, of updating existing kitchens, you must be doing quite a few small bone kitchens, I'm guessing, that were installed 20-odd <laughs> years ago. Yeah, well, absolutely. That's that's what I started with. I think it's generally regarded that trends have a 30-year turnaround. So it's, it's generally regarded that, especially with fashions and, and things. But also, I, I believe it's true in, well, in the kitchen market, in design, so the paint effects that I was doing 30 years ago on small bound kitchens and etc. it's not what I'm talking about now. What I'm working on, sorry, I'm starting to um, use my hands and I'm, I'm talking to you and, and waving my hands around whilst I'm talking to you. They get so involved in it. But I'm inspired at the moment with 19th century um, English lustreware ceramics, for instance. And that uh, can translate into paint effects weirdly you wouldn't expect it to but with pearlescence and burnished effects and lusters and to get this soft subtle uh, movement in a paint finish it's so subtle it just gives it a depth and a slight movement rather than flat painting I think there's so much scope 
for that kind of work these days, as, as well as flat painting. I call it flat painting. I'm talking about traditional hand painting. But the scope for more, and I'm really passionate about taking it further and collaborating with bespoke kitchen companies, showing them what they could do within hand-painted kitchens. Yes, because uh, as you say, the bread and butter of your work is painting things blue, green or grey at the moment, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. But I guess, though, technology moves on in terms of paint and stuff as well, doesn't it, in terms of the materials that you are using? It does. It absolutely does. But I like to just think a little, I hate the phrase, out of the box, but I like to take um, some materials and, and, and push them and see what, they, what else they'll do and see what, what is possible with it. The thing I've got to be careful of, though, with uh, paint effects on kitchens is you've got to make sure it adheres and you've got to make sure it's durable and easy to repair. But you've also got to make sure it doesn't look like a bad paint job. There's a fine line sometimes. Slightly emperor's uh, new clothes if you're not careful with it. That's why uh, it works for me being designer and, and the boss of the prep teams. And I'm on the tools doing the paint effects as well. So that uh, I have a, a product that I've designed that is viable. Um, there's no point in doing something that looks bad or doesn't stick or... Uh, it doesn't last, you know. If you're if you're thinking out of the box, Emma, I'm sure that box would be beautifully painted. Obviously, <laughs> gilded. <laughs> a lot of what you do as well is about restoration, and you've worked on some beautiful, beautiful projects. I'll put the link through through to your website in the episode description here because you've done some phenomenal, huge, great projects on some very old and uh, ornate and beautiful buildings. Yes. The the research and the skill involved for that must be immense. Where do you even start? matching and trying to recreate something that is you know a couple of hundred years old yeah it's um it, it's a challenge for me I'm obviously obsessed and passionate about uh, my work but it's also the challenge as well I've just finished um it was a 50-day commission uh, in the northeast I took my prep team with me so a, a full team of lads and we we hired a house so it's like the big brother house that we stayed in whilst we had this COVID bubble. And we we just belted through it. We put three, there was three lifts of scaffold in the entrance hall that uh, I was painting and everything had a paint effect. It was Victorian and uh, a Victorian entrance hall. Everything had a paint effect on it. Subtle. The, the, the colours were very Victorian. I'm not talking about harsh, overdramatic paint effects, just real subtle uh, textures and nuance, nuances rather than flat paint. And that must then inform the rest of your work, I'm sure. Absolutely. What's the current status of what you do in terms of, uh, of longevity? You know, are there plenty of young people coming up that can make sure these kind of skills go on? Or is it, you know, like so many artisan skills, a bit of a dying art in terms of the kind of level that you operate at? It, that is a very good question, actually. I mean, I'm dragging my son in, kicking and screaming, whether he likes it or not. But it is a good question. I do, I do try and get um, youngsters to shadow me. But they've, they've got different approaches. You have to have the sort of passion, really. And I've been doing this, what, over 30 years now. I actually do know what I'm doing. And trying to show the kids. Also, it's really hard work. Do kids really want to work that hard? Do you want to be swinging off a scaffolding when you're 54? So it's a good question. I don't really know the answer to it. My son doesn't really, he doesn't really want to do paint effects. 
but he's 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 great on prep. I can get people all day to prepare the, the work for me, but it's very difficult to find anyone that has the sort of the skill or the knowledge or the intent to have to continue the work. Certainly, yeah, and that'll be a real shame for the kind of level of hand painted kitchen that you do. Just for, just in the kitchen market, clearly that's a that's an enormous blow. Look, Emma, thank you so much for your time today. But the clock has slowly beaten us here. But I, but I've got one last thing. I need a really important thing I need to ask you about. Genuinely, absolutely genuinely, I have to paint the ceiling of my back room at the weekend, right? <laughs> thank, thanks to a leaky boiler upstairs. Now I am a classic cack handed DIY painter, right? So. What advice have you got for me to make sure I don't make a total dog's dinner of it as usual? <laughs> uh, well, you, if it's a water stain, you're going to have to put some primer, on, uh, some oil-based primer on it or a cover stain on it because it'll just keep coming through. So you'll, 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 you'll stick your emulsion on and it'll, and it'll have just bled through. The stain will have bled through. Don't do that. All right, hang on, I'm writing all this down. I'm writing all this down, Emma. Yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah so yeah and then and then or get someone else to do it well listen i'm in the wrong side of this industry to be able to afford to get somebody else to come in and paint my ceiling for me but look <laughs> one last question please tell me emma at some point in your professional life you have shook a tin of paint without checking the lid was on properly and it's gone everywhere <gasps> no do you know what i did like uh, uh, I've, I've just got a new car. It's it's quite a posh car and it's unusual for me to have it. Uh, so I've got this Q5 and I've put um, I put a five litre. Honestly, I will send you the photograph. This is from last week. I put five litres of paint in the back of my car. Very unprofessional. I wasn't used to the, the car. Uh, 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 so I knocked it into sport and I didn't realise I'd done it. I shot off. The paint shot back, splattered all over the back, all over the boot of my car. I'll send you, I will send you the picture. It's so bad. That was last week. Well, you know what? I'm so sorry for that. That must have cost you an absolute fortune to sort out, but there's a part of me that's secretly glad. (laughs) It's my own fault. (laughs) <laughs> that even you do things like that that's that makes me feel so much better for dropping tins of paint on the floor it really does <laughs> well emma thank you so much for your time i'm so rubbish at anything practical that i am just in awe of anyone who has the kind of level of skill that you have so thank you so much you get back to doing what you do best and we'll, and we'll catch up again soon that's wonderful thank you so much thank you for having me Right, let's talk UK manufacturing now with one of the most prominent names uh, in this country's bathroom market, JT. Joining me down the line is Sales and Marketing Director John Schofield. Hello, John. Good morning, Andrew. Hello, sir. Where in the world are you today? I am currently in the kitchen in Northampton. Right, so JT's normally is in Leeds, so that's a little journey for you. How often are you going to Leeds at the moment? Um, at the moment, probably once a week, once every, once every couple of weeks. It's bizarre having having not done the trucking about for so long. You you jump on the M1 and it's like the last year never really happened. Very strange. It is still strange. Now, look, JT is very well known in the bathroom sector, but for everyone else out there, can you just give us a quick overview of who you are and what you do? We are a very simple business. We make shower trays. We make shower trays up in Leeds. Uh, we've been making them for probably 33, 34 years now. And we will, this year, we'll make in the region of 340,000 trays or so. Primary route to market is via distribution, via the merchants and into the showrooms and via merchants into contracts. And of course, um, we do some export as well. 
you used to be called Just Trades. I mean, that was you set up the entire business there. It's all there in the title, isn't it? But now you've shortened it to JT just to be a bit more snappy, I'm guessing. Well, we did. It was quite an interesting conversation because at the time, which was going back a few years, there was there was a discussion about um, the longer-term strategy of the business and and whether we would venture into other products. And obviously, if you're venturing into other other product categories, Just Trades isn't a particularly um, suitable name. So... So we shortened it, which which would hopefully cover all, all manner of sins. But in the end, we we decided to focus on our core competency, which is which is manufacturing, really. Which brings us nicely to the next question here, which is, you know, how's business going for you at the moment? Well, business at the moment is is a lot more um, what should we say, a lot more palatable at the moment than it has been for the last six or eight months, which were really quite a roller coaster. The surge of business that came that came back from June onwards through to the end of October last year was was like nothing I've ever seen. I mean, just to put that into context for you, Andy, if you take our average daily orders coming into the business, they were running at about every day between June and October, it was 30% higher than the previous year. And that's every single day. Wow. Yeah. And from a capacity perspective, obviously after the shutdown, um, it took a little bit of time to get back up to speed. That in turn caused uh, a backlog, which pushed out lead times. Some of our competitors in the marketplace came back, but didn't come back producing to the same levels as they were prior to the pandemic. So that left a gap. So that meant our our demand was artificially inflated as well. So the, the question was about how business is now. Business is, business is a lot more steady now. Production, we're running 24 hours a day, five days a week. And, and some mini shifts at the weekend as well, and 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 it's levelled out. The orders the orders have levelled out. The lead times the lead times are getting much better than they were, and and the marketplace on the whole seems to be seems to be in a good place, but 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 stable. I think. I mean, did you go through the same issues as so many other suppliers did of, of having to extend lead times, of having to explain very uh, slowly to customers about why there were delays in in their deliveries? Absolutely, and and the key the key reason for that was having not shut the factory down fully during the uh, month of April when everything was everything was closed down. We still kept the factory going, but on a very very skeleton crew. It was it was the surge in demand at the start of June because effectively a lot of the customers during May. It's very difficult for us all to remember now, but nobody really knew what was happening from day to day. Although, although plumbers were allowed to start going back to work and merchants were allowed to open and so on and so forth, there was still a, a lot of hesitancy about, about the sort of short to medium future. So, so customers were using, and rightly so and sensibly so, using the stock that were in their supply chains and in their systems. So, so once, that, once that had been burnt and the, the visibility stretched a little bit further, that's when all the, that's when all the orders came back in to fill that supply chain up and and as i say that was the initial lug and then it just continued the demand continued the surge continued and and it wasn't just shower trays you you talk to any manufacturer and they have a similar experience one of the things i wanted to talk to you about was brexit thought we forgot about that andrew i thought i'd gone do you remember brexit it was, <laughs> uh, it, was it was big news a while ago uh, cuz it's been it's been nearly 6 months uh, since it actually officially, uh, since the curtain came down on it, and as a you know proudly British manufacturer, 
have you noticed any difference? Have you seen anything uh, uh, change because of it uh, in the short term and in and in your long term forecast? What's your view of it six months on? I think it's coming in in phases. Really, the initial phase was one of mass confusion, and that was primarily based around administration, if the truth be known. And that was from everybody from from manufacturers through to customers through to freight forwarders. Um, there were there were there were difference of opinions in terms of whether forms could be filled in black pen or blue pen when when products had got to the border. So, but but you, you but you would kind of expect that for such a for such a big change, you'd expect there to be some 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 mini glitches which caused which caused a few hiccups. Um, I appreciate that there were there were other areas there were other areas where there were even more significant complications. You know the food industry and so on, which we which we all know about going into Ireland. But from the heady world of shower trays perspective, yeah, there was to start with it was administration, and then the additional complication of who pays the VAT, who pays the local duties, and then and then you roll that into a conversation with the increased raw material costs and 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 it, and it, and it becomes a commercial conversation really so so that that was that was the second phase and and from our customer base specifically we have customers who are based in one country but actually deliver consolidate product and then deliver into another country so that caused problems because from a customs perspective it adds complication to it but has it caused major problems in hindsight no in the short term, yes, because it causes you know if you if you add a week or two to the lead time of a, of a customer's delivery because of administrational issues, then then it can cause them problems. But I think I think considering where we are six months down the line from from the word go, when it when it was a bit of a shambles and we've been through what we've been through, I, I think actually we're we're not in a bad place. As I say, you're a UK manufacturer, one of the few. One of the few, you know, Brexiteers would say that the whole point of this was to help people like you uh, free up markets for you to go into. Are you seeing any signs of those advantages? Honestly, no, not at the moment. The markets for us realistically are Europe because of the type of product we are. The reason that we are still a manufacturer in the UK, whereas a number of other bathroom categories have moved further afield, is purely look rather than good judgment because of the the type of product it is it's a very heavy lump of concrete that is relatively cheap so it become so it's difficult to import efficiently which is why there are still a handful of shower tray manufacturers in the uk so so our export markets are relatively local um, which means europe and it certainly hasn't helped us in in the short term in terms of ex- exporting into those countries well, have you still got Boris Johnson uh, trumpeting the shower tray industry into the US, though, John? <laughs> Funny, he didn't, ring, he didn't ring me when he needed his flat doing. I was quite surprised, actually. Uh, yeah. I mean, he, yeah, it was you, pork pies and cauliflowers, wasn't it? Some, something like that, yeah. We were in very, very esteemed company. Now, you manufacture in the UK, obviously, as you say, but a lot of your raw materials, I'm assuming, will come from outside the UK. I mean, there's some you know, big, hefty chemicals and things in there. Are you seeing issues there? Yes. The, the raw materials that make up a shower tray, the, the ones which are the, the really sensitive ones, uh, is, is the ABS acrylic skin, and we get that from Ireland, and also the resin. Both of those have a common constituent, which is styrene in it. And 
what we've unfortunately seen going back to Q4 of last year is there's been a real issue with with styrene based products and 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 there'll have been there'll have been a number of our manufacturing associates that have seen the same uh, same issues so this this has an impact on automotive it has an impact on plastic piping it, it, it cuts right through styrene in particular or, or some of the composites that make styrene they're manufactured in relatively small numbers of factories around the world one of those factories in europe had a fire and Another one was based in the southern states of America where they had the worst winter in a generation. So, so what you've got in essence, Andrew, is you've got, you've got a reduction, quite a hefty reduction in global manufacturing capacity at the same time as you've got an increase in global demand. And that only means one thing, and that is shortage of product and price increases. So, so what we've seen Q4 last year, but particularly since the turn of the year, is not only significant price increases. I mean, just to put it into context for you, between between December and April this year, the cost of our resin has gone up nearly 35% to us. And and and, and when you combine that with with a shortage of product as well, we we're in a situation where we at the worst case scenario, we we were only given two weeks resin. So so we didn't know if we were going to get resin any anything further out than two weeks, which would have just ground the factory to a halt. That visibility is a little bit better now, although pricing is still very unstable. And we're, we're now placing orders for further down the line and we've got no idea what we're going to be paying for it. So, so, so it's been the raw material element has been, has been a real, has been a real challenge to the business and, and, and our, and our competitors and other people within manufacturing. Yeah. And, and the only thing I would say about that is as a, as a manufacturer, we, we were sat there in, in, at the start of Q4 last year, looking at people who are importing all the various other bathroom products and um, sitting pretty that we didn't have the challenge of freight costs. Um, but of course, of course, the world has now come to level. So our raw material has, uh, has pushed us into the price of sur- the, the, the region of surcharges and price increases as well, unfortunately. Right. And what does that mean then for your customers? I mean, is it inevitable that, that you'll have to put your prices up or can you ride this out until it all levels out? No, we, we've every year we take a view and we have very good relationships with our suppliers and, and they they give us what visibility they have to, to try and look at where we need to be or what their predictions are for the year. However, we've had to we've had to put additional price increases into the market. At the moment we want to hold that. We want to it's not just a commercial pain for everybody. The logistics of putting a price increase into the market is, is actually quite difficult. So whilst we're able to whilst we're able to balance that through efficiencies or we're able to swallow a bit of that, we will do. But prices will keep going up. I mean, prices between March and April went up another fifteen percent, our raw materials. So it does get to a point where where you have to you have to be absolutely commercial about it. Well, I mean, look, there's lots of challenges going on in the market, but what's your let's round this off here. What's your view of what the market's gonna do in the next year the next two years you know, where are you seeing the opportunities where are you seeing the growth and you know how do you think it's all going to play out i'm not sure anybody's predicting anything after last year <laughs> it's a brave man but but in all seriousness the, the the market the the macro indicators in the market look very strong the housing market is still very positive new house builders are selling off plan way in advance that means that the that the house market will continue to move. That drives RMI. 
So I'm, I'm very confident about that. I think from an industry perspective, if we're unable to disappear en masse to Europe this summer, that, that of course will help us again because that's, that's, money, that's money to spend on home improvements rather than two weeks in Tenerife. So, so I'm very, very optimistic for the next 18 months or so because I think, I think those, headline, those headline indicators bode well for us. Which is very positive. That's fantastic. Look, John, the clock's beating us here, but it's so interesting to talk to you. And it, the, the Brexit thing is something we'll catch up on in another six months and see what's happened then and whether you're seeing any of those benefits that, that supposedly was what people were voting for. So, look, thanks, John. Pleasure to talk to you as always. Likewise, Andrew. Thanks ever so much. Great to speak to you. That's it for episode three of season three. Thanks to Emma Culshaw-Bell and John Schofield. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us, and I'll see you next time.